Excellent. Well, welcome to this edition of Forecast Direct. I am Lila Bengali, one of the economists with the UCLA Anderson Forecast. And this month, we have the great pleasure of speaking with Nora Pankratz. She's a postdoctoral research fellow at UCLA and Jisung Park, an assistant professor at UCLA. Thank you both for joining us. Today, today, the topic is going to be how climate change and weather directly affect the economy, focusing on labor supply and businesses. So to help our listeners understand what you mean by um, direct effects or direct psychologically driven causal impacts, um, Jisung, I'd like to start with you to get get your sense or your definition of what that means. Sure. So, I mean, so, to some extent, uh, this is somewhat a matter of semantics, what you call direct versus indirect, at least the way uh, Jeffrey Heal at Columbia Business School and I were using that phrase in our 2016 review piece was to distinguish between, so you have the climate effects that arise from uh, things like sea level rise, uh, the effects on crop yields, et cetera, which you could think of as more indirect, at least relative to the direct effects of temperature stress on human beings and what that does to you know, uh, direct health outcomes, mortality, morbidity, uh, cognitive outcomes, which may affect you know, learning and human capital uh, formation uh, or you know, labor productivity, labor supply uh, and other workplace sort of outcomes directly. That's kind of what we were referring to uh, by direct effects. Yeah, I'll stop there. Excellent. Nora, do you have any comments or things to add about how you conceptualize the idea of a direct effect or a direct causal effect? Um, I think Nissan gave a really nice summary of uh, what the literature has recently shown. Um, I think in the context that we're going to discuss today, what's really interesting is that there have been studies at the aggregate economic level on these micro channels, but then also at the level in between on how firms are affected through a combination of these possible mechanisms that lead to uh, direct reductions in performance at the, through these various um, microeconomic channels. Excellent. Um, well, let's go ahead and start broadly, broadly with some examples of these direct effects. Uh, Jisung, you mentioned you've done some research synthesizing the literature on the direct effects of climate change and temperature stress. Um, could you talk in more detail about what you found that other researchers have found, for example, with respect to some specific findings on labor supply, uh, production, and what are some of the psychological mechanisms that explain these findings? Sure. So, uh if I could just take one step back for the listeners, um, just to contextualize this a little bit, you know, the, the, the intuition that temperature might affect human behavior is not new, right? We've known, we've speculated about this for many, many centuries. We've actually known based on laboratory experiments, really dating back to, you know, the mid 19th, mid 20th century, excuse me, uh, that hotter temperature, both hotter and colder temperature actually affect human task productivity and performance, whether it's on cognitive or physical tasks. What I think is new in the recent literature that you know, both Nora and my research is, is a small part of is taking sort of real world data and also applying uh, tools of causal inference that allow us to uh, infer 
causal links between temperature and human economic outcomes of interest in real world settings. This is sort of noting the fact that there's sort of there are important limits to how much you can extrapolate what happens to you know, British naval officers in a lab who are forced to experience three hours of 95 degree temperature, you know, interpreting Morse code versus what actually happens on a shop floor in a manufacturing plant or in a classroom, et cetera. That's, I guess, important sort of context in terms of what we're focusing on in terms of the literature, the new, let's call it the new climate impact literature with regard to direct temperature stress. Um, some of the work I've done is, is on the effect of heat and learning. Uh, we've also done some work on the labor side, maybe just to give you a couple of snippets uh, from the literature. It, there's some path-breaking work uh, by Graf Sivin and Nidell who, who used individual time use data and local weather information to show that you know, on hotter days, so think of a day with daily maximum temperature above 85 degrees, workers, particularly in exposed industries, think construction, uh, agriculture, manufacturing, appear to reduce their labor hours. Uh, roughly in one hour on an 85 degree day, that comes out to you know around 15% of labor supply if you extrapolate that out. There are also studies uh, in a variety of manufacturing contexts that look at the effect of temperature on um, total output and, and per worker productivity. There's a great paper by uh, Samantha and colleagues looking at Indian manufacturing uh, firms you know, a wide range of contexts there too, garment manufacturing, cloth weaving, steel, uh, diamond processing. And there they find uh, pretty significant impacts of hotter temperature, somewhere on the order of two to four percentage points, sorry, two to four percent decline in productivity per degree Celsius above room temperature, above say 70 degrees Fahrenheit, roughly, or 20, 20 degrees Celsius. So that means that on you know, a 90 degree Fahrenheit day, a 32 degree Celsius day, you're looking at daily productivity losses per worker on the order of 30 to 40%. Now I should say, and hopefully we'll get into this in, in the rest of the podcast, those estimates vary considerably by context. You know, if you look in other settings in the United States, those effects, at least in some contexts, are more muted. Uh, but they're nevertheless non-zero. And so we, I, hopefully we'll have time to talk about, you know, what, what are the mediating factors? How much does something like air conditioning or the legal infrastructure play a role? But maybe that helps to give us a sense of what kinds of magnitudes and effects we're talking about. Yes, that's very helpful. And I think that's an important point that you brought up at the end that some of these studies are studies from the US. So they're directly relevant for us here at the forecast thinking about the US economy. So I want to stick with direct effects on firms. Nora, you've done some recent research on how firms buyer and supplier relationships respond to climate risk in the form of weather shock. So I'm hoping you can walk us through the general idea or, or the story you have in mind. Um, for example, firms buy inputs, inputs from other firms, those other firms might be hit by weather shock. Um, and sort of that story you have in mind and, and tell us what you find in your research. Yeah, um, all of that feeds directly into what Jisung just walks us, walked us through. So recently there have been a couple of studies um, focusing particularly on the, the firm level and 
Um, again, I'm just adding to the summary we already heard, but these studies have outlined how firms could be affected, for example, not only through the effect on uh, workers on hot days, but also as there could be disruptions in transportation or potentially additional costs incurred um, if more cooling is necessary for facilities on, on really hot days. And so in this project that you just uh, mentioned, that I'm excited to tell you more about. So this is joint work with Christoph Schiller at, at ASU. Um, and what we do in this project is essentially take this idea one step further. So if we know that there could be um, negative effects on productivity on a single firm, so in this case, or in our case, if we think about a supply chain, first of all, on a, on a supplier firm in, in the linkages of the supply chain, um, what we hypothesize is, so if there's a small shock on productivity at the supplier level, then this uh, shock could be meaningful to the customer, exactly as you outline, um, if there's a shortage in the desired quantity of inputs that this uh, customer firm would like to purchase and isn't able to, um, to purchase as, as initially planned. And that could then translate into shocks to operating performance. And in a way, that's exactly what we test in the study. So again, feeding into what Jisung already outlined, so we use methodologies in order to um, isolate causal effects uh, using quasi-random sources of variation in the occurrence of heat waves and in the study also floods. And what we find best off of that, based off of that is that indeed, if a supplier firm is uh, hit or is affected by a prolonged period of uh, temperatures above 30 degrees Celsius or 90 degrees Fahrenheit roughly, we find that that does not only affect the directly affected supplier firm, but also the remotely located customer. And in a way, this evidence is uh, consistent with the idea that there might be a knock-on effect in supply chains, which means that the cost of these shocks are essentially shared um, among customers and suppliers. Great. So the idea is that if there's a climate shock in, let's say, one part of the country, and I believe you're the data you used were from US firms. So again, these are directly relevant estimates to, to us here at the forecast and us here in the US, that if there's a climate shock in one part of the country, that could have a big effect on another part of the country, even if that did, other part of the country did not have or experience that climate shock. Is that the right way to think about your work? Yes, that's the right to th way to think about it, even though I think the um, scope goes one step further. So indeed, 40% of our observations in the study, um, which encompasses a total of 80,000 connections between customers and suppliers, 40% of these connections are um, tied to US firms. However, we also have global connections of supply chains in the data set that we study. And what that means essentially is that even if um, firms in US directly are not affected as much in a physical sense, um, in, in a sense of the exposure to temperatures within the US that could be knock-on effects through supply chains, just through the exposure um, elsewhere, where impacts of climate change may be much more uh, um, impactful. Got it. So that was for firms. Let's get back to workers. And I think one possible mechanism for how weather and temperature could affect labor supply and or production is maybe fatigue caused by the heat. We touched on this a little bit earlier. That could maybe increase errors or accidents or slow or stop production. I know you both have done some recent work on this in a, um, a new paper with a co-author on the link between temperatures and industries. So Jason, maybe you could start by telling us the, the research question, what you were hoping to find out um, and broadly, you know, what do you find? Does heat affect workplace accidents and to what extent? Sure. So as you mentioned, this is a joint project with Nora, 
here and then uh, Patrick Bear, who is a postdoc at Stanford. And Nora and I joke about this all the time. We're sort of in this line of business where if we find what we're expecting to find, it's even though it's quote good news for the research project, it's terrible news for the world. And that's sort of the case here too. We were curious what the effect of heat uh, or temperature generally might be on workers and workplace safety in particular in this study. Um, just to give you a quick sort of background of what we're doing, we've got data from the universe of workers' compensation claims in California. So think anytime anyone experiences a serious accident on the job, you know, we have that data, at least if it's reported to workers' compensation. Importantly, we know the zip code of the injury itself and the weather, the daily weather on the date of the injury, because we know the date of the claim, uh, daily injury on the claim. And so what we do is we, we link these, we link this information. Uh, and again, as Laura mentioned, being careful about partialing out, you know, the component of variation in weather that can be thought of as quasi-experimental or exogenous, right? Um, we find that on hotter days, it, uh, injury risk seems to go up considerably. So if you were to compare the risk on the day, on a day with high temperatures in the 90s or above relative to a say more optimal day, optimal for workplace safety anyway, in the 50s or 60s, we're talking about an increase in injury risk of an, anywhere between five and 15%, depending on how high the temperature gets. And just to maybe again, put this in perspective a little bit, you know, there's a lot of occupational and industry level variation in, you know, how much safety on the job actually matters for you, right? I mean, uh, all of us on this call uh, are fortunate enough to work in occupations where the baseline level of safety risk is, injury risk is pretty low. Uh, but, you know, just looking at the US, for example, on average, three out of 100 FTE workers will be, will experience a serious injury on the job in any given year. But that masks you know, vast heterogeneity, right? In industries like construction or uh, agriculture, manufacturing, warehousing, these rates are much higher. You know, the average injury rate in an in a industry like warehousing is roughly 18 times that of, of finance workers. And so uh, one of the things we find, and, and, and hopefully Nora can uh, add, add to this, is that the change in temperature-related injury risk is a far in terms of the average risk associated in a given year, it's a far larger problem uh, for workers in highly exposed industries and occupations who also tend to have lower levels of education and are lower sort of to total income workers uh, to begin with. We also have, well, I'll stop there. I, I, you ask a researcher about a paper, it goes on for 30 minutes. Um, but if there are other pieces of, of it that are interesting, we can talk about it in more detail, I'm sure. Absolutely. So I'd actually love to get into the mechanisms. I, I gave one hypothesis that heat causes fatigue, fatigue causes injuries. Did I get that mechanism correct? And, and if that's the case, I imagine that workers and firms can take actions to mitigate this, this channel. Jason, you mentioned this earlier, talking about air conditioning. Um, so Nora, could you talk to us about the, the general idea of adaptation and whether you find evidence of adaptation in this work? Yeah, so definitely adaptation is really important here. And generally, if we think about adaptation, uh, what we have in mind is the pressing need for the economy as a whole to think about how we're going to live and work in a harder world. Um, 
And in our context, what that means is given that we find this evidence of temperatures increasing um, the risk to be injured at the workplace, that we should be thinking about what we can do to mitigate these risks um, and be able to address that going forward. And in that sense, uh, California has been really forward thinking. So in 2006, California implemented the so-called um, heat illness prevention standard. And this standard prescribes or mandates that employers have to take certain measures to protect their workers at the workplace. And those include um, very straightforward measures such as uh, providing workers with additional bra uh, breaks when uh, temperatures exceed uh, given thresholds, as well as uh, water, um, access to shaded areas, as well as um, mandating the implementation of draining protocols to um, think about what other behavioral measures would be possible in order to uh, mitigate these risks. And so how we use that in our study is that we use make use of this implementation of this, uh, so to say, mandated adaptation and test whether the link between extreme temperatures and injuries in the workplace gets weaker around the implementation of the standard and thereby also the implementation of these measures in all kinds of workplaces in California. And in a way, our evidence is in line with the idea that the implementation of the standard was really helpful to uh, decrease the link between extreme temperatures or the extent to which extreme temperatures cause additional injuries in the workplace. Um, and in that way are in line with that there may be a potential for adaptation that is not yet fully exploited in other contexts. Okay, so this is sort of the, the good news part of the, the bad news part of the paper that weather does have this effect, but there are ways that companies, firms, and individuals can counteract those negative effects. That's right. Can I just add a couple of points to, to what Nora just uh, explained really well. Um, one on the bad news piece and one on the good news piece. On the bad news piece, just to answer part of the question you asked earlier that I forgot to answer earlier, Liz, um, there's been a lot of attention on these so-called heat illnesses, the things that really look like, you know, a worker in the field exposed to a lot of, of sun and heat, and what does that do to your body? Uh, we find that those heat illnesses increase on hotter days. Maybe that's not surprising, but what was surprising and, and consistent with a sort of broader array of mechanisms, getting to your point, was that the vast majority of the increase in injuries at work due to heat appear to be for ostensibly unrelated claims. So things like a construction worker falling off of a, of a ladder or getting your hand stuck in a you know, conveyor belt or being struck by a moving vehicle on a work site these things, these types of accidents appear to go up significantly as well. And moreover, they're not only in outdoor workplaces, but also in indoor settings. So combined, you know, those, that evidence is at least to us consistent with this story of, it's not only the direct sort of physiological core body temperature story, but also possibly, you know, baseline safety risks to begin with, fatigue or cognitive errors, just elevating that risk on a hotter day. Uh, one thing I should mention on the good news piece, um, you know, we're, we, we definitely find, as Nora mentioned, a significant decline in the heat sensitivity of injuries uh, within California over this period. And if you look at the data, it's, it's pretty remarkable. I mean, it tends to, it seems to coincide with the implementation of the standard. Uh, we do wanna be careful, of course, about how, 
how much we read into that because it's hard to know just from a time series variation, whether that's due to the standard per se or, or other correlated things we're not observing. But the, the broader takeaway uh, that I think we would stress is that irrespective of the cause of the change, it looks like it is possible to reduce the heat sensitivity, right? The, the total sort of burden on workers and firms, right? Because there are costs to firms as well from these injuries uh, in terms of disruptions and, and extra training costs and what have you. Uh, that it is possible even using current technologies to mitigate these risks. Uh, and so, you know, an important piece of the research agenda moving forward is to try to figure out, well, why, why were these investments not being made? Was it simply because of costs or because of lack of informational salience uh, or something else? Right? These, are, these are puzzles we're trying to, trying to figure out. And it seems like this is made ever more important by projections and forecasts that a lot of areas will experience going forward more and more days that tend to be hotter on average. So now I want to put this work in some context um, to get at why measuring the direct effect matters and sort of highlight the importance of what you're doing or, or put another way, is there an estimate maybe based on your work or the literature of a loss to GDP or output maybe annually from these direct effects or, or something along these lines to take your work and, and sort of extrapolate it out in terms of what it means for the economy. Who wants to go and, first? Uh, uh, yeah, uh, Nora, do you have any thoughts? I'll start with you. Yeah, um, I really like your question. And I think in a, in a way your question connects to uh, a shared motivation in our research group. <laughs> I think Jisung gets to correct that next if, if that doesn't hold. No. But I think, yeah, we really, um, uh, well, we think that uh, measuring these effects is really important. Um, I think, put very simply, in a business uh, sense, only what gets measured potentially also gets managed. And uh, one specific problem with heat is um, that could potentially also apply to other climate hazards, but that is very important is that one additional day of heat uh, may not appear extremely damaging to the economy or to any individual economic outcome. However, what's really dangerous about heat is uh, the combination of the, the small effects of one additional day of heat and what you just mentioned, the projections are relatively large numbers of additional heat days that we may face around the world, but also within the US. Um, and so on, on that note, I think also that makes it important to think about these point estimates indeed. I think Jisung already mentioned a couple in his introduction, and I can just uh, tie back into that with the estimates from the supply chain project. So what we find there is that if we think about an increase in heat days, so days with temperatures above 30 degrees Fahrenheit or 90 degrees Celsius, um, of 16 days, which would be equivalent to um, a one standard deviation. If you think about, say, any location in the world, for example, Los Angeles, and then the um, deviation from the average conditions, then the number of 16 days would be, would be uh, sort of, say, a typical variation and corresponds to something along the lines of three additional work weeks. And we, what we find in terms of the economic impact of the point estimate that, that corresponds to is that a, such an increase of an additional 16 days leads to a decrease in the operating performance of um, a variety of businesses of 4%. So that lines up nicely with the estimate of 2 to 4% that I think Jason quoted from uh, a variety of other applications. Um, and I think it's important to stress because we would expect that that's a magnitude that businesses 
care about going forward. Yeah, I, I think that's really nicely put, Nora. Um, and maybe if I could just add a couple more data points. Um, again, just to contextualize this a little bit, I, I see our work as a part of a, a broader agenda of trying to put microeconomic flesh to the scaffolding that the macro level scaffolding that um, Melissa Dell, Ben Jones, and Ben Olkin uh, sort of pioneered in, in their 2010 AJ paper, where they found that uh, looking across countries at GDP, a one degree Celsius hotter than average year reduced GDP growth uh, by around 1.1%, but only in the subset of below median income countries. So only in poorer countries did they find this effect. And getting to Nora's great point about you know what gets measured, I would I would use a, a similar adage of you know absence of evidence is not evidence of absence in this case, because in that study they were using changes in average annual temperature, right, one degree Celsius, two degrees Celsius, at the country level, you found a zero effect for richer countries. But that actually appears to be driven based on the, the work that, you know, we're, we're seeing come online over the last decade or so, in part because we were mixing up hotter than average years with hotter than average summers, excuse me, with warmer than average winters, which can kind of cancel each other out. In addition to the fact that some of these, uh, their industrial composition effects in terms of, you know, which, which kinds of industries are more or less exposed to the elements. Again, just to put some more numbers in the US context, um, first of all, in our injury work, you know, we, we estimate that hotter temperature causes anywhere between 15 and 25,000 additional workplace injuries per year in California alone. And if you take sort of off the shelf estimates of the total social costs of those injuries in terms of medical bills, lost work time, lost productivity, that comes out to around $1 billion a year in California alone. Another estimate that I, uh, I think might be relevant here is there's some work that uh, uh, Tatiana Dirigina and Sol Sheng have done uh, where they look at personal income across all 50 states uh, and how uh, temperature affects you know, total personal income uh, over time using very similar methodologies. The point estimates there are roughly uh, similar to what Nora mentioned. So if you were to have three more weeks with temperatures above 85 degrees Fahrenheit, that would reduce total personal income by around 2% in the US on average. Uh, I would imagine that if we, you know, if we keep, uh, the, the more we are able to dig into the specifics and the heterogeneity in those effects, you know, by occupation, by industry, I wouldn't be surprised if in some sectors, you know, that number is, is, is more like five, six, seven, eight percent, uh, given what we're finding uh, what we've seen in, in say manufacturing contexts, uh, for example. Those sound like pretty substantial effects. Thank you for sharing. So I wanna conclude by asking you both to give maybe a, a short one or two sentence thought on where you think more research needs to be done in this area of the effect, direct effects of climate change, weather shocks, or based on your research, how would you recommend that macro forecasters in general take these direct effects into account? So Jisung, I'll start with you and then Nora, Nora, turn to you. Yeah, oh, that's a great question. Um, so I won't pretend to know uh, how macro forecasters should do their work, 
except to say that if um, the magnitudes that we are discussing seem, seem large enough to merit at, at least considering the inclusion of, of temperature projections uh, into models of, of macroeconomic performance. Um, in terms of things we need to better understand, I, I think there's still a lot of work to be done to uh, get a handle on the process by which adaptation decisions, uh, whether for the household or for the firm or individual workers uh, are or are not made. And importantly, the various constraints, right? Whether that's financial constraints uh, or, or informational problems, you know, what are the constraints to those investment adaptation investment decisions? I think there's a lot of work uh, that needs to be done there. And then just as a last one, I guess, as a labor economist, uh, I'm, I'm also interested in how, you know, the forces of climate change uh, that have baked a lot of warming into the system interact with uh, broader forces of technical change that are, as we know, you know, fundamentally shifting the nature of work and having very different effects uh, for individuals with higher and lower levels of education, just trying to unpack what those twin forces uh, might do to things like income inequality uh, and, and trends in sort of economic mobility, I think are, are very important questions. Thanks. So Nora, what are your thoughts on where more research needs to be done and or how macro models or macro forecasters should take these effects into account? Yeah, and that's a great question and a challenging question. <laughs> um, beyond the point that, that points that Jisung has already mentioned, uh, I'm personally very interested in the effects on financial markets. And I think in that context, some of the potential tools for adaptation that we don't understand um, as well as we potentially could uh, so far um, are insurance related solutions. So I think that would be one really important field to discuss further because insurance could on the one hand provide a really valuable tool for risk sharing. At the same time, some research uh, specifically in agricultural economics and in environmental economics at large has also indicated that there may be a downside to the existence of uh, insurance if there are any effects through inefficient pricing and creating essentially creating incentives for um, or disincentives for firms to uh, not invest as much as they potentially could. But first and foremost, I would uh, reiterate what Ji Sung said. And if we also tie this back to the question about how this could be relevant for forecasting, I think one really important point is that there, there's a variety on estimates on economic damages. So um, incorporating those and forecasts is probably uh, relatively straightforward, even though I would also not go as far as to <laughs> tell people and forecasting how exactly this job is to be done. But then the, the, the piece that's um, where we know much less is indeed adaptation and thinking about what the potential of adaptation is to mitigate damages and reduce these damages. And I think that's one really important piece for accurate forecasting that, that should be explored a little further. Excellent. Well, thank you both so much for sharing your thoughts. I really enjoyed hearing about your research on this very timely topic. Uh, so as a recap today, we have been speaking with Nora Pankratz, postdoctoral research fellow at UCLA, soon to join the research department of the European Central Bank as senior economist, and uh, Jisung Park, assistant professor here at UCLA. Thank you both so much for your time, and I look forward to watching for more research from both of you in the near future. Thank Great. you for having us.
Thank you, Alice.